If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them, if you would, to Matthew chapter 28. We're going to jump in there in just a moment. And we're going to walk through some, something pretty important this morning that this is kind of as we start the year, where are we supposed to really focus in on? Uh, and what you're going to hear, hear today is not going to be some earth-shattering new revelation that you've never heard before. It's just going to be an underscore of what God has really said is true and what he's called us to. So this morning, if you've ch- if checked the, the version notes or you know that the, the title of a message today is kind of interesting, and the title is Fly the Plane. And that comes out of uh, the book and the movie and then actually the, the eyewitness testimony of, you remember the story of, the, the true story of the, the, lane, the plane that was landed on the Hudson by Sully Sullenberger, the, this amazing miracle on the Hudson. And uh, I've watched, you know, different kind of excerpts, watched the movie, and just kind of interested, fascinated when to, to watch something that literally is a miracle. The fact that 150 people did not die when a plane landed on water and stayed intact enough for them to be rescued. Uh, it's, it is an incredible story. And so the, the kind of the, you know, the gist of it is when I'm not a pilot, but my brother-in-law is a pilot and I know enough about I mean, it's, it's a miracle. They're at 2,800 feet, had massive bird strikes, lost power in both engines and became a glider at 250 miles an hour with less than 3,000 feet of elevation. That's crazy. Over the most populated area in the world. Manhattan. And to find a way to land that plane on water and save everybody's lives is a miracle. But one of the things that really caught my attention, one of the things that Sully Sullenberger said in, in interviews, he said, in the midst of all of that was going on, I mean, that, that is crazy. That's a bad day at work, you know? Can you imagine? So you're, you, you have no power. You're trying to save people's lives. You're trying to spare people's lives on the ground. What are you supposed to do? He said, in the middle of all that, he remembered, he remembered one of the things that his, one of his first flight instructors told him about what is most important, especially in crisis when lots of stuff is going on, he said the phrase, remember to fly the plane. Now you think, well, duh, you're the pilot, you should fly the plane. But when you're in the middle of chaos and all these warning lights are going off and sounds and everything, it's that, that what do you, you, you start to lose sight of what's going on around you and realize that sometimes you can forget the most important thing. In fact, he Sully Sullenberger said so much, he said, I so remember that. He said, normal protocol for them in that cockpit was when, the, when an emergency of that, that type hit them, he immediately was supposed to give the controls over to the first officer, and then as the, the, the captain, he's supposed to start working his way through the checklist, the emergency checklist. He said, I didn't do that. He said, I knew I was supposed to be in control of the plane, so I kept controls. The first officer started to work the checklist. And he said, because I knew in my mind, I kept hearing this, fly the plane. And what's great is that if you watch that and read the story, he didn't follow protocol. You know why? He was flying the plane. And if he would have followed pro- protocol according to Airbus, which is the maker of the aircraft, we would have lost 150 people. But he instinctively flew the plane and landed where he landed because he kept his focus on what was the most important thing for him to do, was fly the plane. This morning I want to talk about the most important thing that Jesus has given to us if you are a follower of Jesus and what he's instructed us to do. In fact, I'll tell you what it is, and it's nothing earth-shattering, and it's something you've heard over and over and over again, and I'm sure you can guess what I'm about to say. It's discipleship. And some of you are like, what does that term even mean? We'll talk about that. It's we are people who follow Jesus, so therefore we are called disciples, and we are called to make disciples, which we'll talk about. That's, that's what we are as individual followers of Jesus, and as a church, that is flying the plane for all of us. That's the most important thing. In fact, just before we jump into Matthew 20, I want to give you just a quick snapshot, and you'll get this in, in the weeks ahead, kind of in a postcard form, but go ahead and put, the, this is our core, I wanted you to take a look just quickly on the screen of what, what makes up the flying the plane for us as a church, what does that look like? 
there's three kind of primary things that all work together to accomplish the overall purpose, which is that God has given all churches, but our church obviously specifically, is to partner with Jesus in the world to help people be reconciled back to God through him so that they can learn to be in relationship with him, to become like him, and to worship him. That's, in, an es- in essence, that's what it is. How does that work? We have an identity that comes out of Acts chapter 11, which that's why we're called Antioch Church, patterned after a church in the New Testament. And out of that, you can see on the screen, there's four things that kind of make up our identity, which is not necessarily what we do, but it's who we are, and that's why we do what we do. And that is missional, multi-ethnic, generous, and incarnational. I'm not going to unpack all those. I've talked at length about those this year. But that is our identity. Out of that comes our ultimate goal or mission. What is that? How do we know we're being effective? three areas and there's three terms that we use there's reconciliation discipleship and worship and those are defined this way with jesus like jesus for jesus in other words are we more with jesus are we seeing people reconciled back to god through jesus are we looking more like jesus in our life and are we worshiping more jesus by giving our full attention to him in everything that we do that's the questions we have to ask but there's a specific and detailed process of how we fly that plane And that's highlighted in the third place, and that's the process. There's a lot of things that we'll do as a church, but there are a few things that we are dialed in. And this is, to me, the the Lord has said, this is where we fly the plane. There's three things that represent that. One is a line. You just heard John Looney talk about it on on the video. A line is the front door of Antioch. It is the place. It's not a membership class. It's more of an orientation, not necessarily specifically to our church, but an orientation to the gospel, the story of God. That we start with that, and then everything of as we, who we are as a church flows out of that. So if you haven't gone to a line yet, and this is your church home, you need to find your way into a line. It comes up a week from tomorrow, um, and it's, a, it's an investment of your time. takes two and a half to three hours, but it's important. Then you'll know who we are, what God is doing, and how we align ourselves with the gospel. Second thing is the DE classes in that process. So those classes, we've had one and two that we've unfolded, will unfold three and four in the next couple of years. But those classes are not my theories or my ideas or we didn't borrow it from somebody else. Those classes are based on the teachings of Jesus in the book of Matthew. We look at his words, we study his words because his words are most important. So the first class is the life of the disciple. What does Jesus describe that as? The second one is the mission of Jesus. What does he call us to? And so it's important for all of us to go through that. So if you haven't been a part of one or two yet and you need to jump in, start with one and then you'll get to two the next time it's offered. And then the third thing, anybody heard of community groups before? Yeah, probably ad nauseum, right? You're like, yeah, again with the community groups, Pastor John? Yeah, because community groups are, they're small groups, but they're more than small groups because they're, they do Bible study and prayer and care and support and all those things, but they also have a missional focus that gets us outside of ourselves to serve our community. And those are the, those are the primary things. And so those three things make up who we are. There are other things that we do, like you see things for men's and women's and things like that periodically, but those are supplemental. They're not primary. But though what you see on the screen, that is primary. And so to be a part of the flow of what God's doing in our church is to participate in those things. That's the core of who we are. I just wanted you to see the snapshot because that's how we fly the plane. Now, getting to probably more of a personal approach this morning, let's go ahead and take a look at Matthew chapter 28 and talk about this. Asking this question, and, I, and I'm not going to apologize, but I am going to qualify. This is going to be a challenging message, and, and, and I'm going to tell you right now, because I've, I've been doing this long enough, and I've been the pastor here for four years. I'm going to get feedback from this morning, and I'm going to get two types of feedback, feedback, and they're actually the opposite of each other. I'm going to have people to come up to me afterwards. I already did first service, 
You say, yes, Pastor John, I needed that. I needed someone to come and push me harder and, and challenge me. And, and yeah, and, and for those people who are sitting around doing nothing, I'm so glad you went after them this morning. I'll get that stuff. I do. Like, rooting me on it. Then I'll have people come to me and say, you know, I really felt really bad about myself and really guilty and, and really, you know, and, and in a negative way, I really didn't appreciate what you had to say. I'll get both of those. I know I, I do that. And my intent is not to get either of those. My intent is to listen to what God is saying to our church family this year of how we're supposed to individually fly the plane. What is most important at the end of the day, what we are responsible for. And so I'm, you're going to see a little passion out of me, and that comes when we kind of talk about our church and God's mission. So Matthew chapter 28, what does Jesus tell us to do? What does he expect of us? So let's read this, starting verse 16. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe or obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We call this, we've given it the name, the Great Commission. And it is extremely important because what Jesus says and when he says it. These are some of the last recorded words that we have of Jesus on the earth. And it comes at a very important part in the journey of Jesus on this planet and his, his followers, his disciples. So Jesus is talking to this group of people that he called to himself. He called them to follow him. And now he gives them this instruction. And he does this right after his death and his resurrection. He, these followers have watched Jesus. They followed him. They watched their dreams and their hopes die with him when he died on the cross. But then he watched, they watched their lives be resurrected in him when he rose from the dead. And they watched somebody who paid for their sin on the cross and then conquered death, which is the greatest, the greatest, greatest enemy of humanity. Jesus does all that, and so that's why Jesus says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so when someone dies for your sin and then conquers death in the process, you and I should probably listen to what he has to say. Would you agree? That's a slight understatement. So when Jesus, anything that follows what Jesus is saying is so important. And so what does he say? What is, in a sense, using the term, what does Jesus say? This is flying the plane. All elder things can fall the wayside. This is the thing that you should be about. And he says what? Go and make disciples. And he says there's two things he highlights about that. One is baptism. Baptizing, which is the, 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 the front door in terms of the initiation into the body of Christ. It's not the moment of your salvation, but it's the, the outward sign of that God's doing something in me. I belong to this family. I belong to the family of God. I belong to Jesus. It's so important. That's why it's coming up on the 22nd of this month. That's the first thing. But then he says, what? Teach them to obey or observe everything that I've commanded you. So he's describing for them, this is what discipleship, discipleship, what is disciple? When we hear the term disciple, what our default is, is, oh, it's somebody who sits in a classroom and listens to somebody teach the Bible and gets more knowledge, and then they're a disciple. Read through the Gospels, you're not going to find that model. What was Jesus' mode of discipleship? Life. That's what it was. There were moments of teaching. Jesus definitely taught, and we, we, we gleaned from those. But he didn't spend three years of his life, day in and day out, standing in front of his disciples, teaching them. No, he lived his life under the power of the Holy Spirit. He healed pe people. He cared for the poor. He, he did teach. But he demonstrated to them what it was like to be what they're supposed to be. 
which is to be like him. So a disciple is somebody who is not only a learner, but there's somebody who looks and acts and thinks and talks like Jesus. Not looks in the outer appearance, but looks in terms of the rhythm of their life, just like Jesus. That's what we're called to be. In the process of being saved from our sin, reconciled back to God, we start to look like the one that we follow. That's discipleship. That's what God has called for us to be, disciples, and it's what he's called us to do. Now, for some of you, are like, I get that. But, you know, I've had people come to me and say, you know what? I never knew I was responsible to make disciples. I thought that was your job. Did you notice there's no word pastor in this passage ever? It's just disciples. He said this to his disciples, which is all of us, that God calls us all to this. So the, I think the best definition of discipleship, if you want to simplify it, is actually in 1 John chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. It says, this is the only way we, are, we can be sure we're in God. Anyone who claims to be intimate with God ought to live the same kind of life Jesus lived. We look at Jesus. Am I thinking more like Jesus? Am I acting more like Jesus? Am I falling in love more with Jesus? It's about him. But here's the challenge. Jesus tells us that once the world gets to hear the gospel in every tongue, tribe, and nation, then the end will come. Has the end come yet? No. That means we haven't made disciples yet of the world. So if this is the charge and this is what we have, then what's the struggle for us to make disciples? Why haven't we already done this? I mean, we have the greatest news of all time, wouldn't you agree? That we have salvation in Jesus, that God loves us enough to send his son to sacrifice for us to be, so we could be in a relationship. So not only are we saved from eternal separation and, and hell, which is horrible enough, but we're actually saved to life with God to actually live out who we really are supposed to be. I mean, that can't, there can't be better news than that. And if we have that, then why haven't we made disciples of everybody yet? Why are we still trying and struggling? There's a few things I want to highlight, I think, of why I think we, we find ourselves in the place that we're at. What are the barriers that we have yet to overcome in our lives that will lead us to be people who are not only are followers of Jesus, but we help other people become followers of Jesus? The first one is this. The first barrier we have to consider is moving from consumer to contributor. This is a tough decision. We live in a culture that is built on a consumeristic mentality, which is, what can I receive? What can I get? What can I consume that will make me happy in life? That is the, the premise of almost all of what we see in our culture. It's, it's, it's built into the premise of the car we drive, the house or apartment that we live in, the job that we work at, the entertainment that we're a part of. It's all built into this. And it's built into a mentality that says, what's in it for me? That's the bottom line. It's, that's the question. What, what, what happens, though, is that that's because that's part of our human nature, is that when we come, become followers of Jesus and we become a part of his family, become a part of the church, that doesn't just disappear. So when we come into the church, and especially what happens is over time, the church, we buy into this, and we start asking the same question of the church, which is, what's in it for me? And when you read through the, the, the Bible, you read through especially the book of Acts, you never see any of followers of Jesus saying, what's in it for me? They're always considering what's in this for Jesus and what's, this, what's in this for other people. That's why it actually says of the early church that there was actually a season of time when nobody had need at all because everybody was saying, what is in it for them? How do I support other people? How do I care for other people? But this transition of actually not being a consumer, and that's kind of the challenge for us because if we're honest with ourselves, we make decisions. If you're a follower of Jesus, what church we're going to be at primarily comes out of a consumeristic approach to church. We walk into the door and we start asking questions mentally that we don't even really realize we're asking, which is, 
do I like this? Does it work for me? Do they have the programs I want? Do I like the pastor? Is the worship good enough? Do I like where I'm sitting? Is it too hot? Is it too cold? All those things. Whether you know it or not, you're asking those questions all the time. Where does that come from? It comes from the underlying question which says, what's in it for me? Jesus never asked that question. He never came to what? Be served, but to serve and offered his life as a ransom for us. That's Jesus. So we have to fight against that. Why do we have to fight against that? Because everything in the culture says it's all about you. Just think about it. Here's a, here's a picture of this. The biggest places where people congregate in public for an event are stadiums in our country and around the world. Think about a stadium for a minute. What is a stadium built for? We think it's, it's built for a sporting event. Yeah, it is. But it's built for what? It's built for the consumer. It's built for the person who's going to come and do what? Spectate. So if you walk into a large arena or stadium, the focal point is where? On the field or the court. So your positioning of your seat is positioned in such a way, if it's a screen or if it's a, you're, you're focused in on that. You're not focused on the other people there. You're focused in on what is in the middle. And so when you have that, what happens is then everything in that experience is built for you. Not built for anybody else, but built for you. From the food you eat, to the screen that you have, to the tickets you have, to the bathrooms you use, all that is built for what? What's in it for me? So when we, when we take that in our culture and we apply it to the church, then we ask the same question. Here's the thing is, when you go to a stadium, they don't ask you to come onto the field or the court, do they? Anybody gone to like see a Laker game lately and they said, hey, suit up. <laughs> go to a Ram game, they probably could use you on the field right now, they're so bad. <laughs> but just, just think about this for a moment. No, why are you there? You're not there to participate. You're there to sit and cheer. That's all you're supposed to do. That's why, just a little pet peeve, I hate when people say we and they refer to their team. I didn't see you on the court of the field, okay? They are your team, but not we. Why? Because you're not participating. That's what a fan is. A fan sits back and applauds, but never really gets into the game. And when that becomes a part of our faith, then we're in trouble. We can never really become a disciple, let alone make disciples. Why? Because we're still asking the question, what's in it for me? Reading through Scripture, and I may miss one or two, but I'm telling you, I've read through Scripture, and I can only find one place in the Bible where we're allowed to be spectators. Only one place. And you know what it is? It's when you die. Hebrews chapter 11. There's a great list of all these people and all the things that God did to them and the faith that they had. And it actually uses this term. We have this great cloud of witnesses. These are people that have gone before us. And they now are gone past their time, and now they're in this great cloud of witness as though they're in the stands of heaven cheering us on, and they get to sit there while we get to be participants in what God's doing. So either that's really good news or really bad news. Like, oh man, I thought I was going to be able to just coast. Which, by the way, one of the reasons that the chairs are different today is because this, the way this seating configuration is made up is that we actually have to see each other. More than just the back of the head of the person in front of you, which you're always going to see. So hopefully it's good looking today. But when you look across from this section to this section, what do you see? You see people. And some of you out of the corner of your eye, you see people, depending on how good your peripheral vision is. But we did that intentionally. Why? Because this is really, church is not supposed to be a spectator sport. We're supposed to be, what, contributing to what God's doing. And that's part of the, the hurdle or the barrier that we have to get over. Second thing is that the barrier that we have to face is we have to be willing to move from same to different. This is hard 
You know, I have found that so many people say to me, oh, I'm all in for change. Let's change this. Let's change that. And then when change comes, they're like, oh, don't change anything. That's usually the way it is. We love the thought of change, but we don't actually like change because we like what's the same. We like the familiar. In fact, this is true of our seating. In fact, I saw it in both services. You walked in today and you're like, oh, no, where'd my seat go? <laughs> the funny thing is watching people try to walk down the center aisle and realize it only leads to a dead end, right? And I w especially first service, it was really funny because I think first service, you guys are a little bit more like fluid. First service, I'm really like, you could take attendance by seating chart in first service. So people walk in, they're like, oh, I could see, I watched five or six people just stop and go, like total confusion on their face. <laughs> I don't know what to do. I don't know if Jesus is still on the throne if I can't find my seat. <laughs> what is that? That is this underlying kind of like commitment to, I want something to remain the same. God the Bible, God's purpose in the world never changes. But culture, time, and the church has to. Has to. Can't remain the same. If you don't think that's true, then go back 2,000 years ago. See if you can get in some kind of time warp. And you look at the church 2,000 years ago, it looks nothing like the church today. And it's not supposed to look anything like that. We're not supposed to be the same. The core of who we are is the same. But the way that we function is completely different because things have changed. And this is important because we have a tendency to fight change because we always want things to remain the same. And this is true. If you're a follower of Jesus, something happens in our journey with Jesus where we experience a significant moment in our faith that we feel like it's either the church we're a part of or the personal journey that we're on. Something happens and we feel like there's a deep sense of maturity, growth, challenging, healing, whatever it is. And we want to stay in that moment. We want to live there. It may be a certain style of church that you had growing up, and you're like, oh, singing those songs and having those kind of messages and doing this with kids and this in the community. That's when we were really church. So anything that's different than that comes as a threat to you. But what we fail to realize is the world has rapidly changed around us, and we're still playing catch-up. We can't do that. And here's the way that the world has changed, is that if you go back... 20, 30, 40 years in our culture, in America, in Western culture, people had a tendency to say yes to the church. So if you ask somebody to come to church, they were more favorable than unfavorable towards coming to church. And they would say, oh, sure, I'll come to church. But now, in the recent years, probably in the last five years, studies have shown that only 40% of the culture is that way anymore. 40%, 60% is not. 20% of that, of that other 60% would be considered atheists. It doesn't matter. They have no concept of who God is and aren't interested in it. That other 40% has been either offended or misunderstands the church and God completely. And so if you invited them to church, they would say no anyway. So what does that mean? That means that the concept of church has to really be what Jesus intended, which was Jesus sent us into the world. He said, go make disciples. Literally translated, as you are going, make disciples. Now, inviting someone to church is a good thing, and you should do it. But that's not what God called us to do. He didn't say, therefore, go and invite people to a church service. He didn't say that. Why? Because he knew that it's not about bringing people into a building for a service. It's about sending his people into the world to be like Jesus, to make disciples. And for some, that is a change and a shift, and that's difficult. 
but we have to move beyond our past. We have to, God, it, now I understand there's personal preference and there's styles and there's things like that and we have things that we like, but at the same time, at its core, we have to be willing to admit that there are things that we have to be willing to let go of to embrace the new things that God wants to do in our church and in our life. I'll never forget, after my, my prom in high school, there was four of us couples that we hung out together and we had always had a good time. So afterwards, after the prom was over, we drove down to LA downtown. We went up in the Bonaventure Hotel to the, the restaurant up at the top so we all could, you know, afford a, a, a Coke, which was like 10 bucks, not kidding. So like, okay, we're all going to break the bank for a Coke that's going to last like 30 seconds, but it's this experience, you know, so we're all dressed up, and, and so we get there, and we, we hang out for about, I don't know, half hour, 45 minutes, and kind of look at the city, and then we're all getting back into the elevator to go down, back down to our cars, and so we get in, and, and we all crowd into this elevator, and then these two ladies, they're probably in their, like, probably early 60s, they get in, they kind of cram in with us, and so we're all dressed up with like, these two ladies, and we're like, this is awkward, you know, and so we're standing there, and, and it's a pretty tall building, so it takes a while to get down, and so the, this one lady looks at us, she goes, oh, I've got something to tell you, I'm like, oh, okay, well, what are you going to tell us, and so she has, like, this captive audience, we're not going anywhere, so she looks at us, and she says this, she goes, I gotta tell you, she goes, you guys are experiencing the best time of your life, and at first I thought, oh, this is pretty cool, and then I went, oh, no, She's saying that going to the Bonaventure and paying 10 bucks for a Coke with some of my friends is the best my life is ever going to be. That's what she was saying. And she started reminiscing about 40 or 50 years ago when she was in high school and how she remembered her prom and it was the best time of her life. And I went, oh no, my life is over. I remember leaving depressed thinking this is really, this is fun, but it has to be better than this. But this poor woman is living decades ago in her life. And everything she does always looks back to, oh, that was when it was really good. Some of us are in that in our faith. Oh, it, was, it has to be better. The process of God doesn't change, but he changes us. We have to embrace that. Excuse me. <coughs> I'm getting a little passion here. So moving on. <coughs> Excuse me, number three. <coughs> I will get there. Trust me, it'll come back here. And that is the breaking the barrier, moving through the barrier, of moving from management to mission. I know these are not easy and these are challenging, but moving to the point where mission becomes our focus, which is what? With Jesus, <coughs> like Jesus, for Jesus. That's the focus. That's the goal. That has to be our mission. That's what flying the plane is all about. Why is this so important? Because sometimes in our journey, in our faith, and sometimes the way that we look at church, is that it's a place that just manages my sin and my struggles. It's about what I'm going through in my life and the difficulties I'm having and how the church or how God's going to just continue to work on me, and that's all it's about. It's just about me trying to, be, trying to overcome my addictions and my struggle, <coughs> struggles and never getting beyond that, but living in that reality that this is what Christianity is about. It's just about making me from bad to better. That's like the goal of Christianity. That's a byproduct of Christianity. That's the result of knowing Jesus, is Jesus actually transforms you from the inside. He delivers you from your sin, brings forgiveness. He gives you power over your sin and your habitual addiction. He sets you free to life. All of those things are a part of knowing him, but his overall mission of flying the plane is what? Becoming a disciple and making disciples. That's what his focus is. That's why he came. And for us to move beyond that management to mission means that we have to keep that in mind. That the church is always in motion, always moving, and it's always about the outsider, not the insider. 
That is the mission of God, always pushing that. And that's why sometimes people who come to our church say, I feel really uncomfortable. And they look at me and say, Pastor John, you're making me feel uncomfortable. And I say, no, I'm not making you feel uncomfortable. You go read Jesus. He'll make you feel way more uncomfortable than I ever will. Because he makes me feel uncomfortable all the time. He loves me and I'm in a relationship, but he challenges me. And that's because he, at his heart is his mission, his love for people. He's going to continue to pursue that. And this, is, is, this sounds a little bit ridiculous, but this is kind of the concept. What we end up doing when we become kind of more management or maintenance oriented is that we never get to the end result of what God's purpose is. We stop somewhere along the journey and think that this is good enough and never realize I never got to where God, where the ultimate destination is. I never got to with Jesus, like Jesus, for Jesus. I never got there and I never helped other people get there. Why? Because I stopped at a rest stop some along the way and thought, this is good enough. When we were living in Oregon, we traveled two to three times a year from Southern California back and forth from Oregon because family and all kind of stuff, and we wanted to visit the sun at least a few times a year because it rains all the time. You think we're getting rain? Take a look at the forecast for Oregon and Washington. Pray for those poor people. We're getting text messages from them. We got freezing rain this morning. They weren't even having church this morning. They couldn't even get out of their houses. So we got, if you got a little rain, we're good, right? But, but the process of going from California to Oregon, we kind of got it over time. We got it dialed in. The ultimate goal was to get to Southern California as fast as we could or to get home as fast as we could. So everything kind of aligned itself that way. We got this thing dialed in. We knew where we were going to stop. We knew how far we could go. We knew what food we were going to buy. We knew where we were going to gas up. And that was all a part of the journey. But one of the things that we never did in any one of our trips is we never stopped. And we said, hmm, this looks good enough. I know we're supposed to get home, but I really like this rest stop. In fact, I think I'll pull the tent out of the trunk right now, and we'll set up tent, and we're just going to live at the rest stop. I think this will be great. The kids will love it. They'll have a big yard to play in. Well, it's just wonderful. We never did that. And you think, that's stupid. That's ridiculous. That's right. It is. But how many times in our following of Jesus and the mission of the church do we kind of get to this maintenance mode and like, hey, this is good enough. This is good enough. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. We're not to the end. It's kind of what Peter went through when Jesus, you know, in Matthew chapter 17, when Jesus goes up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and he transfigures, he gives them a glimpse of his, his, his divinity, and Peter's like, oh, this is good. In fact, I'm going to start building tents right now because we're going to hang out here for a while. And Jesus goes, no, Peter, I'm giving you a glimpse as we're moving forward. And the same thing is true about the church. We're always moving forward. The mission of Jesus is always the goal. So we keep pursuing that, and we keep going after that. That's why even in our finances, that piece of the, those pieces of the pie, mission established, it have to get bigger and bigger and bigger because that's what Jesus called us to do. And then finally, the final barrier that I want to touch on this morning is moving from obligation to passion. And this is a big, big thing, and this is why I said this would be a challenging message. See, when it comes to the church making disciples, serving God's purpose, is that we come to this place of saying to ourselves, oh, I really feel bad. I guess I have to do this. Pastor John was really pushing hard this morning, and yeah, I know that Matthew 28 thing. I've heard it a few times. Man, now I have to go do this. I feel really uncomfortable. I'm really awkward talking to strangers. I'm really not a people person. I let the evangelist do that. I don't want to do And so we come up with, anybody ever had that internal dialogue? Just be honest. You know what you're dealing with? You're dealing with obligation. And obligation will never be the fuel that will get you to the mission of Jesus. It'll only lead you to frustration and condemnation. Here's the difference. When Jesus came to his disciples in Matthew 28, he knew he was talking to them. He knew he was talking to a group of people who have just witnessed his death and resurrection. And then, when you get into Acts, he sends his Holy Spirit 
to give them power and passion for his mission. He knew he was asking them to do something totally impossible, but he gave them the fuel for that impossible task. They had witnessed the resurrection, and they had been filled with the Holy Spirit. They had passion. You read through the book of Acts, you don't find any obligation. You find passion. How in the world could those original disciples go from when Jesus went on trial for his life, they all fled, that's what it said, in the Garden of Gethsemane, they all scattered to being the group of people that all, from what we know from history, except for John, they all died for the sake of Jesus. Did they die? No one dies for obligation, but you will die for passion. And that's the difference. God's call us to be, by his Holy Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit, to have passion. And that passion has to come to a place in our life where we are driven, not because, oh, I have to do it because somebody said, or I have to earn God's favor. You can't earn God's favor. That's grace. But there's something inside of us that has such a deep passion for what God wants and love for people that we're driven by this. That's what December was about. We went through the series, Do We Really Know? Do we really know all of what Jesus went through and how much he loves us and he loves the city that we live in, he loves the world that we live in, that we're driven to do the same because he loves people. That has to be the driving passion. We can no longer see people as irritants or enemies or people that are just in the way of our life. These are people that God loves. They have to be our driving passion in life. And if they're not, then, then we're missing something. We're missing the point of why, not only why we've experienced salvation, but what God has called for the world. It has to drive us in a good way that we're passionate about that. That's how Jesus lived his life. So a couple things I'm going to close with this. This is what I've really been reflecting on actually over the last two months, maybe two and a half months. When you find out something that is life-changing for you and life-giving for you, but you find out something that you didn't know before, there's a good side and a bad side to it. The good side is you realize how it's going to change your life, like knowing Jesus. The bad side is you know now. You're no longer ignorant. You know. You've heard something that you didn't know before, and now with knowledge comes accountability. Now you know the gospel, the best news ever for the entire world. You know the gospel, that is awesome, but then you're like, oh man, now I know. I have an obligation. I have a responsibility that driven by my passion, I have to now embrace that in my life. And this is important. Let me just tell you two, two passages of scripture I want to touch on. No, you're not going to go there. Real briefly, I'll touch it. Matthew 25, there's a, pas- or a parable Jesus tells that we many of us know. It's the parable we call the parable of the talents, and it really has nothing to do with money, even though money is used as an analogy, where a master is going to go on a trip, and so he entrusts three of his servants with some of his money. He gives five to one, five talents to one, two to another, and one to one, one of them. And so he set, goes away, and his expectation, you can tell on the back end, his expectation is they will take what I've given them, and they will do something with it, to earn something back for it, to, to make something of it. And as you know the story, the one that had five doubles it to ten, the one that had two doubles it to four, and the one who had one, what does he do? In fear, he buries it in the ground because he was afraid he was going to lose it. And then when the master comes back, the first two, he applauds. He actually gives more to. And then the last one, he actually says these words calls him wicked do you understand just listen to this for a moment what was the master calling that servant wicked for for what for what what did he do nothing that was the problem 
The problem, his wickedness was in the fact that he was afraid, so he did nothing. And for many of us, that's where we live. It's somebody else's responsibility. I don't have to do anything because I'm saved and I live in God's grace and he loves me and I'm getting heaven. And you're right, you are. But let me just remind you, there are two judgments. One of them is taken care of already. And it's because you and I, if you say yes to Jesus, you're covered by his sacrifice. You are forgiven for sin. You are under his grace and his mercy. And you are saved to be with God forever. But there's an accountability that comes after that. There's another judgment. And it's what Paul records in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 10. He says this, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil or wicked. There's accountability. So we're going to stand before God someday. He's going to look at our lives. He's going to say, hey, I gave myself to you. I gave you the good news of the gospel. I gave you my Holy Spirit. I invested all these things in you. What did you do with it? Because I'll know one thing for sure. When I stand before God someday, he's not going to say, I'm going to check off your morality list. Let me just go down the list not going to do that because he knows i'm a sinner and he knows he's transformed me from the inside out and that's taken covered by his grace but he's going to look and said i saved your life what did you do with the life that i saved and this is important for us and i want us to hear this as i close because i know this can be convicting we are all accountable for that i'm not accountable for disciple making just because i'm a pastor i'm an account accountable for disciple making because i'm a follower of jesus that's all of us and so when I stand before God, this, this haunts me. Because Jesus is going to, I'm going to stand before, I'm not going to stand before Jesus with all of you, and you're not going to stand before Jesus with me standing next to you. I'm going to stand before Jesus by myself, face to face, and he's going to look at my life, and I know I'm saved, and I know he loves me, I don't doubt any of that. But you know what he's going to ask me? He's not going to ask me about my money. He's not going to ask me about the house I lived in. He's not going to ask me about the churches that I pastored. You know what he's going to ask me? Where are they? Where are the people, the disciples that you made in this life that now get to enter into their reward as you enter into yours? I know that's going to be a part of the accountability. And I want to be able to stand before him someday with the passion that I live in this life and look down this line of billions of people and say, yeah, you know, number 20, number 50, number 1 million, number 10 million. Yeah, I had a part in their discipleship. I had a part in helping them know who you are. I had a part in helping them become like you. And then what will Jesus say? Here's your reward. Well done, good and faithful servant. Because I entrusted you with a little. And then what did you do? You invested it. You risked it. What does God reward? He rewards risk and courage. Not apathy and fear and stagnation and maintenance. And that's why he's called the church to live on the edge. Because guess what? You can't lose because what God asks you to give away isn't yours. You can't lose what's not yours. You can't, the gospel's not yours to hang on to. It's yours to live out, but it's not yours to hang on to. It's God's. And if the gospel's really good news, then we won't be able to contain ourselves. We'll live with passion. We'll be driven by that. 
And that starts with your family members and your neighbors and your coworkers and the relationships that you have. Let God move on you in such a way this year that it isn't, you don't have to go present some program of four spiritual laws and say, well, I'll make sure I get out. No, just do life with people. I went door to door and delivered batches of cookies at Christmas and have incredible conversations with all of our neighbors. The first time since we've been in Simi Valley, I know all my neighbors. I know their kids. I know their life story. I know what's going on with them because it keep, Kim and I keep pushing ourselves out. We're praying for them. We're caring for them. We're trying to do things because now we're knowing the story behind the story. I'm surrounded by five houses that don't know Jesus, and I'm so glad I'm there. All of us are there. You don't have to go to Haiti to find people who don't know Jesus. You just open your front door or you just go to work or you just go to school and there's the place that God's placed you that says, listen, I've called you to make disciples. I'm doing this on purpose. I've chosen the time and place for you to live and where they're living and you're supposed to be the one. Now live like me and demonstrate what it looks like to follow me. You don't have to preach at people. You don't have to try to debate with people. Just be Jesus to them. And see what God will do through you. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your investment in us. We thank you that you were willing to give yourself for us. You didn't hold anything back. In fact, Lord, we sang earlier, you don't give your heart, you don't give yourself in pieces. You give all of who you are to us. You didn't hold back. And Lord, we, if we who know you, we can experience the joy of our salvation, the grace and the mercy that you poured out on us, the, the confidence to know that we can spend eternity with you. But Lord, let that drive a deep passion in us so that all those that we come in contact with, all those that we know, all those that we have yet to know, that Lord, there would be something deep inside of us that would drive us with your love for people to help them to know you so that, Lord, we can say, we heard your voice, we hear you. We hear you when you say, make disciples, baptize, obey. Help people to know you, Jesus. So give us the courage, fill us with your Holy Spirit this year so that we might be able to accomplish your mission and your purpose in the world. In Jesus' name.